0: This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniform Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. Government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniform Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. Government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We
1: give you actionable intel to support what you do.
2: One colleague to another.
1: Hello, and welcome to Practical for Your Practice. I'm Andy Santonillo, senior military behavioral health psychologist at the Center for Deployment Psychology, and I've got Kevin with me today. Hey, everybody. Hey, Kevin, how you doing? I know you're playing hurt today. You're working on a migraine, so I appreciate
0: you showing up. You know, it's it's. I guess it's all about showing up, right? So. Yeah, harnessing. is it crazy things? Mike is here to edit it out. That's <laughs> that's the good news. It's just it's
1: just the migraine talking. That's right. <laughs> Doctor Holloway harnessing all of his um, psychological flexibility scale uh, skills mm-hmm. to be here today. Um, sure. And we are excited to have one of my best friends, maybe my best friend, and uh, a longtime colleague, Doctor Joshua Semyon with us. Hey, Josh.
3: Hey, glad to, have, glad to be here.
1: Thanks for being here. Um, so, can you tell our listeners a, a little bit about who you are and what you do?
3: Yeah, um, I am a psychologist. I'm the program manager for outpatient mental health services uh, for VA Maryland, Maryland Healthcare System. Although, I uh, should be clear, I'm not here representing VA Maryland or the VA writ large in any way, shape, or form. It's just, just Josh. That's what it is. Just do. Josh. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um stay tuned for Josh's podcast, just Josh coming in. <laughs>
3: just Josh with Josh.
1: <laughs> and uh, we're also happy to have Jenna with us today. Hey Jenna.
2: Glad to join. Thanks for having me too.
1: Um, so, Josh, you know, we've had many conversations over the years about being psychologists and therapists and practicing evidence-based psychotherapy. And um, I believe, as far as the clinicians I know, I think you are probably the best trained. Uh, therapist and evidence-based psychotherapies that I know. What does that mean? <laughs> and what does that mean? Gonna,
2: I was going to say, wow! Like <laughs> yeah. I really, I want to know more to about
3: that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so you could you could met you could use different criteria for that. But the criteria I'm using is, I believe, Josh, you have been through at least six or seven of the VA um, evidence-based psychotherapy rollout trainings, so, so including intensive you know, two-day workshops followed on by uh, a period of, you know, fairly lengthy and intensive consultation. And you've completed, I think, all of them. Not only have you enrolled in them, but you've completed all of
3: them. Yeah. That does sound right. Yeah. That's a lot of... That's impressive. Yeah. It's a lot of me being an imposter and trying to prove otherwise. (laughs) But getting some good training in the meantime.
1: (laughs) You know, padding the CV whilst doing that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, thanks to the
3: VA for offering those. Yeah
1: yeah, I mean, it's an incredible, so first of all, it's an incredible opportunity to be able to train in those things, but also gosh, the dedication and commitment and fortitude to finish all of those trainings is something else. And so what, which of the trainings can you, can you name the therapies that you've actually been trained in?
3: Yeah, I'll try. Uh, so yeah, um, PE, CPT, uh, so maybe I'll just say bond exposure, cognitive processing therapy, cognitive behavioral couple, con, cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy for PTSD, um, motivational enhancement therapy, act for depression, integrative behavioral couple therapy. Um, there's got to be more. Let's see. Also, um, I did what's called VA Calm, which is not ex- it's it's basically mindfulness based stress reduction, although you know, you're know you not trained to become an MBSR uh, Practitioner per the you know, UMass guidelines, but it's for, it's an entire year focused on MBSR and other related approaches. I think I'm, I think I'm missing one, um, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, Cognitive some behavior therapy for insomnia. Yes, that is that as well. Yeah, maybe Yeah, and maybe one more, but yeah, those are, those are some of the main ones I use.
1: So let me ask you: with all of so you've successfully completed all those uh, all those trainings, all the consultation. When you sit across from a client now, you feel completely
0: confident and competent all of the time, right? Got all the tools in the toolbox. Yeah, yeah, <laughs>
3: I've got all the manuals burned. In my, my, my brain. <laughs> uh, I just like you know worksheets come out of my ears. Uh, no, no, that's not at all the case. Um, I constantly question what What am I doing? What am I doing right now? And I constantly, in my best moments, I think, refer back to when I was an intern, before I did any of these trainings, one of my supervisors told me, and I think many of you may have gotten a similar message of, if someone were to bust through your door right now in session, just, you know, obviously inappropriately, but it doesn't matter, (laughs) bust through your door right now, you know, with the best intentions and say, yell at you and point at you and say, who are you, what are you doing and why are you doing it? Who are you? I can answer that one pretty well, but what are you doing and why are you doing it? You know, what's your conceptualization and how are you following that right now using evidence-based principles? You should be able to answer that, boom, right now. Mm-hmm. And I defer back to that, that question quite a bit. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? What's my conceptualization? How does this fit the spirit of the model? Um, I still question that all the time.
2: I thought my internship was rough. I didn't have <laughs> friends yeah, we... and people <laughs> busting in and... Defending what I had to do. So. The, the cooler, I'm, I'm, I'm bowing down to you.
0: The, the <laughs> those, are, man those are was, great questions. The Kool-Aid man, the, the Kool-Aid man was the supervisor. <laughs> I was just thinking that on my internship, I think I thought I was more confident in answering questions like that than I am now. Mm. Which I, I thought so I knew everything as an intern.
2: I think as we develop over our career, I, I, I don't know, for myself, I feel more humble as time goes on. And I think when we work with, you know, there's something about being an early career uh, behavioral health provider where maybe that serves you well to kind of have that bravado a little bit more and kind of gets you through those rough moments. But I think as time goes on and and I love those questions, um, they, they are powerful throughout your developmental career, I, I think, as a behavioral health provider.
1: Yeah, that Dunning-Kruger effect is something I'm, I'm thinking about a lot more um, sort of the, the more I get into my career. And it's For interesting.
2: Those of us who aren't as smart as you, can you say what that effect is, please?
1: Um, it's, it's essentially what we were just talking about, that when you have a little bit of training, you think you you know everything and you're really confident in what you're doing. Um, they, and so like there's sort of a curve, like the more training, a little bit of training, your confidence is really high. And they call that Mount stupidity. (laughs) And then the the more you (laughs) like very, very, if you're paying attention soon afterwards, you start to realize that you really don't know much at all. And then you're sort of in the valley of despair. And then you start to actually grow a sense of competence over time, but your sense of confidence about that really lags behind. And so really seasoned, competent professionals often um, have the opposite issue where they um, begin to underestimate and are less confident in their abilities, even though their abilities are, um, are pretty, uh, are getting better. And then maybe at the end of your career for four seconds, you feel like you're competent and then you're. Retired.
3: <laughs> but you were wrong. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. This is kind of sophomoric stage is part partly what you're saying of, you know, psychotherapy and EDP training where, you know, you're the, you're the wise fool. Um, and then later on, you're really wise, but you, you really doubt. Um, and that can be a stuck place to be where you have a lot of skills and then you get stuck because you doubt and you question, I should know more, but why am I not being as effective as I should be? And then you stop being as effective as you could be.
1: And that sense of being an imposter, not confident, it clearly, well, I mean, I know your work, we've worked together. You're, you know, we know a little bit about your CV. You're definitely one of the the more talented and skilled clinicians that I've met. And I, you know, Still, it seems like there are plenty of times where there's some doubt
3: in your work. Absolutely. Frequently. Um, and I, I felt normalized in that um, when I was in training. I remember uh, one of my supervisors who I looked up to as being an amazing, amazing couple therapist. And, I'll, and she was saying, you know, as a parent, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no clue what I'm doing. And that's okay. Uh, constantly holding that, not knowing what I'm doing, holding that anxiety, um, asking myself, what should I be doing right now? And not knowing the answer is a great way of parenting, uh, I think. And uh, you, you can apply that same thing to psychotherapy. I think that bringing not knowing and doubt to a certain extent, like in a Yerkes-Dotson
0: kind of you know uh,
3: paradigm is really, really powerful. Um, uh, yeah, bringing bringing not knowing and that, 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 that inquiry, that questioning is being a, a really powerful self-centering tool in psychotherapy.
1: So when it comes to training and using training to become more competent, mm-hmm. have you found that there have been times where maybe you've signed up for a training or gone through it hoping that maybe it was going to help you to be more confident, like maybe push that imposter syndrome Back into the closet or something, or get rid of it altogether? Like, have you kind of noticed maybe that being part of your interest in getting some more
3: training? That's been a huge part of it, um, you know, for for a long time. And even still now, it's almost like addiction is too strong a word, but it's almost like this, oh, yeah, I want that hit, that hit of, of, of feeling like, yeah, I'm not, and that's one more nail in the coffin against becoming obsolete someday. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same when buying books you, you know on the podcast you can't see it but i got this whole bookshelf full of books most of which i haven't read um and is that same kind of hit i buy the book oh man that's a really great new book shiny written by a great author now okay now i'm a little more confident that's one one less possibility one less chance of for me beca- becoming obsolete and um and scorned in, as a psychotherapist and and being useless as a psychoth- psychotherapist but i don't even read the book it sits on my desk. It looks shiny and nice. But yeah. So yeah, the answer question. Yes. I've signed up for almost all these trainings with a good chunk of, I want to avoid this feeling of, of becoming obsolete. Mm-hmm.
1: It, it's just so interesting. Cause I think about my experience too. And um, I, I, I do the same, <laughs> same thing. I think recently <laughs> I bought three or four, uh, you know, books around a topic that I know really well for the same, like I need that new worksheet, or this is like an interesting way of describing this concept. And often when I buy those books, it's when I'm feeling a sense of doubt or insecurity about my practice, or I'm working with a a challenging client, often really early in therapy. And I don't know them well, because I just met them two days ago, you know? Um, And then there's the idea that if I just read enough or am smart enough or have enough new concepts, then I'm going to feel like I'm ready to go when in fact, you know, it might be good to to have those new concepts in that training to to bring to bear and have it come out of you when it's appropriate. Yeah. But I, I haven't found that's all that helpful and helping me to feel confident.
0: No, it doesn't, it doesn't chase the imposter away. Yeah. So, so I have a question though. And, and, and there's a part of me that's like, in some ways I could, I could see somebody getting the the message of, you know, training, ordering books, reading stuff. Not that helpful. And on the one hand, you know, I think, gosh, it really is important, you know, to have good training and to to be skilled and and to develop new skill sets. On the other hand, it, it's not it's not that you're saying don't get trained. You're, what, part of what you're saying is that that's not the cure for feeling like the imposter, yeah. but know, there there are other things to do in addition to being trained. You're not going to chase it away just by going to all these workshops and attending all these consultations and such. Exactly. Exactly.
3: Be trained as an imposter, um, not (laughs) (laughs) really, you know, take your imposter syndrome to the training. um, And yeah. Training is a beautiful, beautiful thing, um, especially when you know there's opportunities to put it into practice quickly afterwards and really hone mm-hmm. it in, um, and get some consultation if possible from colleagues. Um, but yeah, yeah, we, the intentions we bring to training are really important for how skillfully we're going to bring that training into the therapy room.
2: I think that's so important to model for. Um, you know, I used to work with interns and and residents too, and I think modeling that. Being okay with this uncertainty and um, that it actually probably makes you a better provider to to have that in your repertoire of um, you know how you how you go about business and sort of that um, it fuels your curiosity it fuels your your desire to grow um, and and continue to to train and get better at something and I don't know if you have you had experience with that in in your settings and you know advice you'd give to other folks who might even be supervising from from that standpoint. How do we like pass this on?
3: (laughs) I just want to make sure I fully understand your question. Um, If you you wouldn't mind kind of rephrasing it.
2: Just how this idea that, you know, we, we have this uncertainty um, and we don't always feel like we have a, you know, we have ambivalence or uncertainty and um, perhaps a little anxiety about uh, what we're, what we're doing, if it's the right thing, not always being completely sure of our answer, you know, despite all this training, despite, we still feel this imposter syndrome um, and that, That's okay. It's okay to sort of be uncertain and and you're still wanting to get consultation. You're obviously still wanting to move forward in the best, to the best of your ability. Um, but it's okay to not always be certain. It's okay to not always feel like you have the answer. And I feel like that's an important thing to model for, um, interns and in, in residents or whoever, or, or people you're supervising that are earlier on in their career. And I was wondering, you know, like, how do you sort of take that experience you have? Do you, I, I feel like you have worked with and supervised many folks. Um, you know, what do you do from a supervisory standpoint to kind of uh, make that okay, if you will, mm. for other folks?
3: Got it. Thank you. There are a number of things you can do. Um, first, um, I think it's, Modeling from a supervisory standpoint that I struggle, I'm struggling even right now, is even the most powerful. I don't know what to do right now in this situation with this patient or in this situation Um, I don't know. I'm struggling. Um, you know, we, you know, To a certain extent, that self-disclosure, I think, makes it safer for the supervisee to disclose their own feelings of uh, discomfort, uncertainty, um, anxiety, what have you. So I think it really starts from the top, that modeling, I think, which is what maybe you're alluding to in part. It's really important. I'm struggling with this ethical issue. I'm struggling with this clinical decision. I don't know how to conceptualize this behavior. So de-, de pedestalizing yourself makes it really safe, um, relatively speaking. I think also I find it helpful for me, and therefore I hope it's helpful to supervisees to simplify, really simplify, um, meaning within whatever therapeutic approach you're using. Over overlearn. I would recommend a default stance to fall back onto when you don't know what to do. You know, we are, you know, by and large, highly educated individuals. You know, we've we've because of how we've learned in school. I think we don't know what to do. We often, myself very much included, we tend to fall back on concepts, explaining theory, exp- offering more education, more more words, more more ideas, more concepts. Instead of, and we want to try to because we want to try to fix. We're anxious. We want to try to make it better. And those are, Beautiful, compassionate intentions, but often not the most skillful intentions. So I, I encourage supervisees to develop a very simple, clear stance to fall back to, kind of your default stance if you were to do you know, karate. I don't do karate, so I apologize to karate practitioners if I'm everything, saying everything wrong about your, your practice. But um, like in CBT, if you don't know what to do, maybe just lean into some Socratic questioning. You know, in ACT, if you don't know what to do, Maybe just leaning into beginner's mind. I don't know. And kind of in your own stance and just become just really curious about the present moment experiences. Encouraging them to make space for the present moment experiences. I don't know what's going on right now. Versus trying to kind of flip through the model, flip through the manual in your mind. Um, or try to just plow on with what the manual says you do in today's session. Um, robotically. Have, have, have a simplistic... Stance that's spiritually consistent with the model, and fall back to it And you don't know what to do.
2: I really like that. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Me too. I guess I was reflecting a little bit too on on my own experience as well. I mean, I think like everybody, there's certainly those times that I've felt that imposter syndrome, and I, you know, I think about in that moment with a client, what am I supposed to do next? The the times that that was way more keenly felt, I think, too, is when I kind of made the leap from doing clinical work in the VA where I did my internship or in the DOD where I saw clients in uh, you know military hospitals where these clients were coming for services that weren't necessarily paying out of pocket for like right away. And so when I started seeing clients in private practice, I felt this extra burden of they're paying for something. They're paying for expertise to tell them what to do next. They're paying for getting better and am I providing that for them and and so there felt like this extra push um to to be that that expert who was you know making them better and fixing the thing and so that I found myself really struggling with that idea too. am I you know am I competent enough to provide the service they're paying for out of pocket? and i don't I don't know if we wanted to comment on that, but just the kind of that experience there too for me was that's that's especially when I felt it it was was when I you know jumped from. Well, someone else will pay the bill. You just show up for your appointment to right. this is something they're really investing in.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I see that as thematically, perhaps another example of where we as therapists get stuck in stories that cause us to hesitate in session. Um, and there's a number of, number of ways we can, we can get to that hesitation point where we we're kind of, in some ways, at least in that moment, kind of paralyzed. Uh, relative to our true skill set, right? Yeah. We, we pause like, oh, um, I really should be doing more. I should be fixing this better. I should be saying more, more better, right? <laughs> more, <laughs> right. faster and more and better because they're paying for every moment of this. Um, when, we, when we can actually, with, you know, that, that writing reflex can lead us to talk over their experience. Yes. Um, yeah. Powerful writing reflex. Um, and so, yeah, it, it kind of, that relates, I think, very strongly to our theme of when we get training to try to remove the of our of our minds. And by the way, I come to this podcast feeling very much like an imposter. Like I don't have anything to share of use. Um, so I'll own that very much. Um, but when we, we pursue training in that, with that spirit, again, we can take that spirit with us. We don't have to not have that spirit to be trained. I take yeah. that spirit with me to all my trainings. Um, it, it comes right alongside me. But if that's the intention is I want that feeling to go away, it's probably just going to expand that, that sense of imposter because now we've got all this knowledge and now we should know even more than we used to know right. And now in therapy i'm even better than i was and i've got all this all these great words and spreadsheet worksheets and then we try to do the rolodex in our minds and prove to ourselves that we are who we have trained ourselves to be and we're not really there we're mm-hmm.
0: stuck especially when the clients that we're seeing are not following those example cases you hear about in the trainings too right, <laughs> right. that they but right. somehow they took a left turn and, and like well, what am i supposed to do now or um or or this you know spiel that we've you know, polished isn't landing on them the way that we intended it to those are those moments you know where it's like well like now yeah. now what do i fall back to i guess is what i'm thinking about you know what you were just talking about what do i fall back to when that's not landing when I'm trying yeah
3: and and or when I'm trying to control this process too much. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of it was a very insightful book from Irvin Yalom, who's of course a terrific therapist. It's not a comment on that whatsoever, terrific, amazing therapist and writer, but a book, I forget the title of it, where he and, and a client of his both documented their course of therapy and and compared the two. And you know, paraphrasing of course, his recollection was you know, in this in session X, I made this this, this, this brilliant, beautifully timed insight. They used just the right words and bam. And in that same session, the client's recollections of the session was, he really heard me. He really heard me in terms of how I was, how I was struggling and feeling. He was there. He heard me. Missed the insight.
1: And it, well, that's so interesting too, because like another huge part of this are the client's reactions and what they're perceiving as helpful. Even if we think we're doing one thing, they may be getting something totally different and we might think we're doing exactly what the manual says to do and therefore doing good therapy and we might be, but it may be a totally different experience for the client.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I really kind of coming back to the parenting comparison or parallel. I think, a, I think a powerful therapist is a therapist who, to a certain degree, lets go of certainty. Um, really, and really is uncertain, uh, not to the point where they're feeling just throwing their hands up in the air and saying, I just, I'm a worthless therapist. That's obviously not useful and not true, um, but it's just uncertain as to where to go in this particular moment. And that by doing so, you kind of let go of, your, of a tight grasp on um, what, you know, all the things you should be doing but aren't doing well enough and just show up.
1: So, I had um, one more question for you, and then I think it's probably time for actionable intel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Earlier on, Kevin was talking about intentions, and we've been talking about intentions and approaching training. And it seems like one of the intentions that's probably not helpful to have is like, this is going to make me finally, once and for all, get rid of my imposter syndrome. When, you know, if you were to give some thoughts about and advice about intentions that you cultivate and you bring to, workshops and training, or that you would suggest maybe someone listening bring, what what sort of intentions do you think would be helpful to cultivate?
3: Mm -hmm. That's a great question. The first one that comes to mind is the two things that seem to help folks the most, regardless of whatever therapeutic protocol or zeitgeist you're following is cultivating cognitive flexibility and meaningful action. Again, I'm a simple guy. I like to keep things simple. You know, we've got lots of manuals and words and highfalutin stuff, but those are the, that's it. So when I'm pursuing training, I'm, at this point, I'm, you know, I'm taking my imposter syndrome with me. It's coming along regardless of whether I want it or not. And I'm really, I'm really leaning into my curiosity about how can I find new, even more expansive ways of helping folks to develop more flexibility with their own thoughts and still do things that are important to them. Uh, show up to the moment and do things that are important in their lives, to feel more uh, enlivened, spontaneous, meaningful in their life? How can I expand my toolbox of ways to help them to achieve that flexibility? Because there's no one way it's going to work for everybody. Fantastic advice.
1: Well, I really appreciate you being with us today, Josh. Um, And we always like to leave our listeners with a couple of pieces of actionable intel. So do you have any thoughts about maybe a couple of you know, simple actions that our listeners can take and, and maybe put to use right away, if they're kind of in this imposter syndrome, but also want to be a better therapist. Space.
3: Yeah, yeah, I'll do my best. So, one thing is again, just to reiterate, uh, keep keeping things simple. The Kiss Method. Keep keep it simple, stupid. Uh, in terms of just overlearning, reminding yourself, what is my what is my default stance in this in this therapeutic approach? Um, Really, it really is helpful to, to, to catch ourselves when we lean into the writing reflex. So again, whether it's CBT, you know, just defaulting back to Socratic questioning when we're not sure where to go, or ACT, defaulting back to letting go of knowing what, this, what, what will help this patient, letting go of having the patient have a specific experience, a specific insight, a specific behavior change, a specific drop in scores, and just being really curious about what's happening right now in the therapy room. And making space for that. Um, so having that default stance, where, where, where do I go back to? You know, in couple therapy, similarly, um, um, when I don't know where to go, I just get real curious about what's, what are the feelings in the room? What's coming up right now? Versus trying to direct change because I, my theory tells me I should direct this change um, or start talking about, you know, conceptually where we should go. Yeah, that may be useful at times. I, I like sharing conceptualizations with patients. There's definitely time and place for that. But when we're not sure where to go, just dropping into your default stance can really help that writing reflex. Check it, make, help us be more useful in the moment. Uh, I would also say it's helpful for me at least, and perhaps for others to remind yourself that our job as therapists really is within certain bounds. Not just ethically, of course, but also pra- practically. Our job really is, in, from my point of view, from my simplistic point of view, is to highlight our options for our patients. You know, they may be having, a, understandably, a myopic point of view as to what it is that I'm capable of doing and what's possible in this moment. So a lot, of our, a lot of good work we do is just highlighting and clarifying options that people have. And then also offering to help if they want to walk through a particular door and they're not quite sure how. You know, let's talk about some skills, ways of accepting, ways of moving forward, um, ways of communicating, what have you, right? We have a lot of skills on toolbox, helping them to make the choices that they want to make. I think that's really it. That's our job as therapists. Everything else is is not really. Um, highlighting options, helping them to, to, to take the options that they value the most. I think that can help us to loosen our grasp on... Lots of shoulds and musts and why nots in terms of what, we're, what we think we should be doing in the room or not doing well enough in the room. Uh, and then also, that's kind of on a macrocosmic level, level or more, maybe more on a microcosmic level, um, letting go of the partic- particular outcomes in each, in each session and um, each episode of care. You know, we want patients to have specific kind of insights, specific changes. Um, we want them to say, I feel better, um, to have a certain drop in scores. Um, this may seem counterintuitive, we all come into this wanting to help. And we're not, I'm not saying that we, we stop wanting. That's not in any way the message. That's, that's why we do this. this comes. That's what brings us in. But letting go of particular outcomes, particular insights, particular changes, because then we're robotically following a model, following a conceptualization that isn't alive. Um, it doesn't allow us to drop into where they're actually struggling right now which is unique in this moment and what, 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 what it was last session, perhaps. Um, so letting go. Well, I
1: really, really appreciate you, um, giving us those couple of pieces of actionable intel. Another thing you mentioned, you know, throughout our podcast episode today is changing your relationship to that imposter syndrome, maybe instead of trying to defeat it, but, you know,
3: befriend it's coming with you anyway. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that back. Uh, you may even give your imposter a name, might be your name, uh, but you know, <laughs> to be kind of silly, even flippant, but you know, really I, what I do is I just, I mean, i work for others, but just saying, Oh, Hey, there you are. Welcome back. Welcome back, friend. Um, you're sitting here with me too, so to speak. It may seem kind of corny, but really whatever it is, using humor is a great way to do it. But, but seeing the imposter as completely welcome in the therapy room and not something to fight. It's the, it's, it's not the imposter. That's the problem. The imposter syndrome will always be there. You know, my mentor throughout undergrad and grad school, I look up to as being one of the smartest psychologists, smartest human beings I know admitted, you know, at one point, which is shocking to me, he still doesn't know why he wasn't fired from his faculty position that no one's found him out yet. When he admitted that to me, I was floored, floored. And, um, Yeah, so it's not the imposter thought that is the problem. It's our relationship to the imposter thought that causes us to get potentially stuck and um, paralyzed in sessions to an extent. So I would just say when the imposter thought comes back, hey, welcome back, friend. Yeah, pull up a chair. Pull up a chair. Let's do this therapy together, right? It's okay. And reminding yourself that a not knowing stance about what's going to work exactly in therapy is actually the healthiest stance, like just like being a, a good parent. Um, if you think you know exactly what you're doing at all times, you're probably missing some really important things that your kids need.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, thanks for joining us again, Josh. It was so good to talk with you, and um, appreciate the really, really practical advice.
3: Sure, really
0: pleasure to be with you all. Thank you.
2: I can't wait to name my imposter.
0: Do it. I was going to say, I feel very exposed like i feel like we were talking about me
1: (laughs) well thank you for joining us for practical for your practice and we'll
0: see you next time thanks everyone
2: thanks for listening to practical for your practice
0: please feel free to subscribe rate and join in on the conversation in the comments
2: until next time